I believe that this high-tech industry that I was getting involved with really held the secrets to unlocking the future of the Middle East. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to Storymark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, entrepreneur and venture capitalist, Ellie Wortman. Ellie Wortman is a creator, a visionary, a leader, and he's also a winemaker. We got a chance to sit and talk with Ellie in Bachelomo Vineyards, his winery and guesthouse in the northern part of Israel. Ellie spoke about taking several companies from founding to IPO, including his first company, TTR Technologies, Delta 3, which back in the 90s became one of Jerusalem's first unicorns, and Vroom, his most recent exit. We also discussed the non-traditional road to creating his own venture capital firm, Pico Venture Partners. Bottom line, everything that Ellie touches turns to gold. How? Well, Ellie has a special talent for figuring out how a good story can turn into a huge success. Growing up, Ellie's home life wasn't all business. His parents were activists involved in the Refusenik movement, which in the 1970s protested Soviet restrictions on immigration, primarily to Israel. The Wurtmans themselves actually immigrated from the U.S. to Israel when Ellie was just eight years old. And the things he learned growing up in this household impacted him greatly. My parents traveled to the Soviet Union in the early 70s. They met a Jewish activist, and they chatted, and they realized that their ancestors and his ancestors had come from the same town in Eastern Europe. And it was just a kind of mishap of history that they were living in Philadelphia and the comforts of uh, suburban life, and that this person here was being chased by the KGB for teaching Hebrew, you know, underground. And that's the environment I grew up in. I would argue that to this day it was the best training ground for being an entrepreneur. For all you activists out there, I would say keep that in mind. You learn how to kind of make a big impact with a small amount of people, a small amount of capital. It's very mission-driven. Sounds like you're very grateful for your parents' decision. And I wonder, fast forward, we know what your career looks like. Is that something you always thought you're going to be doing, uh, becoming an entrepreneur, a business person? It's a big debate, right, in academia and otherwise, you know, are you, are, is it innate? Are you born with it or can it be learned? In my case, in all likelihood, it was innate. My parents don't understand it. There was no business people in my family. But, you know, from a young age, I was very motivated to build things. I built my first business in Jerusalem as a 12-year-old. It was a very simple business. It's a service I'd like to have today, by the way. I kind of went to uh, around the neighborhood, knocked on people's doors, actually got bit by a dog as well in the process, and I offered them a new service of fresh roll delivery to uh, their doorstep before the kids had to leave for school. I collected up uh, neighbors. I went down to the local uh, bakeries in Jerusalem. I had a discussion with the drivers of each as they were dropping off their morning fresh bread delivery. I said, I'd like to buy rolls from you. In hindsight, I'm like, what, what, this, what is this driver thinking? This kid, 12-year-old kid, is showing up at 6 in the morning to buy rolls and I'd sell them retail with a little markup for the uh, delivery service. It was a fantastic business until one thing happened. It started to rain. There was a price I was willing to pay of waking up early. I wasn't willing to do in the rain. But definitely, if I look back, that was definitely 
my first startup. I was a technology, and it involved uh, a walk uh, around the neighborhood every morning. So this awesome little bread delivery service sounds like a formative experience. Was there anyone who influenced your ideas about entrepreneurship early on? Steph Wertheimer is one of Israel's greatest entrepreneurs ever. I think that most people today don't even know his name, unfortunately. He was a German uh, Jew who had moved here pre-statehood, had a very kind of industrial-oriented focus that Israel must become an industrial nation with manufacturing and building things. The real secret and the secret that I had learned from him is that his framework was very much an ideological framework, that Israel was born out of the Zionist movement, out of this dream of returning to the land, a dream of rebuilding the land, stuff which I connect to very deeply. It began with agriculture. Uh, you're sitting in my home, underneath this home. It's a 2,000-year-old home of people who were practicing agriculture here beforehand. The next stage was the army, the IDF. That without the ability to defend ourselves, we would not be able to ensure the Zionist dreams. But stage three very much depended on economic prosperity, that only through economic prosperity could we ensure the long-term viability of the Jewish state. For him, it was kind of industrial innovation, but the words that he chose was the high-tech industries. It's a prophecy. He made this in 1984. He said the high-tech industries will ensure prosperity and eventually bring peace. What we're seeing today, this was his vision in 1984. It's that ideological framework for Zionism that gave me a framework to live my life, that through the strong Zionist foundation that I had kind of discovered growing up at home, I could express myself on this entrepreneurial journey. Incredible to think the influence that he had on you and the influence that you have on so many other people. After that experience, you decide to go to study and you choose to go back to the U.S. and go to Columbia University. Of all the things that you could have studied that are probably going to direct you uh, in an easier path to become an entrepreneur, business person, you chose political science and Talmud. What was uh, the reasoning behind it? Was that the only studies that you got into? What, what, what happened there? Intellectual curiosity is not necessarily what defines your career. If our goal in life is just to kind of learn computer engineering and build an app and make a lot of money, it'd probably be pretty meaningless. I would argue today that, you know, the real magic of education is opening up our hearts to give us the foundation of values of understanding how the world works, which you can build on top of. Talmud and the Jewish tradition, I found to be fascinating. The ethical business questions that were asked 2,000 years ago are still relevant to our societies today. Political science is curiosity. We live in one of the most political regions in the world. It all revolves around one square kilometer, Jerusalem, where all the faiths, all the religions come together. Understanding what's going on in this region, I think, is necessary to live here. So I'm very, very uh, happy with the decisions I've made. Should I have done an MBA? Should I have done a degree in computer science? It would have helped me. It would have saved me some time. But my decision was kind of follow my heart, and uh, it's, I think it's worked out pretty well. So you graduated from Colombia. What was next for you? I had to start making a living. You know, I got various odd jobs. I was a gardener, folding laundry in a laundromat, making pizza. I was a real estate agent. But high tech, which wasn't part of the language here, came knocking in 1993. So you find yourself in this budding Israeli high tech industry. And at the age of 30, you had already three successful exits. 
how did you succeed without any previous business experience? I had the very good fortune of getting lucky early in my career, taking three companies from founding all the way through to uh, IPOs on NASDAQ. And I tell people kind of my, the most important piece of advice for career is get lucky early. Probably my single biggest breakthrough, which one might say also has to do with the journey of an immigrant. Back in the 90s, telephone calls were very expensive. When I was a student in Columbia, I'd speak to my parents once a week for 10 minutes. Well, back then, it cost two to three dollars a minute to make a phone call. And I had budgeted a hundred dollars a month maximum, which was a tremendous amount of money to call home. It's with that experience that when the first technology came out of what's called voice over IP, and I had said to myself, What if we could connect a regular telephone, make a call across the world, but instead of going through this very expensive telephone network, we would use voice over IP to reduce the cost of international calls by 90% and still leave a nice margin for ourselves. We went public in November 1999. We started the morning at a $500 million market cap. We ended the day at a billion dollars. Three months, we went up to $2 billion dollars. We didn't have the term unicorn, otherwise we'd be talking about it, but it was the first kind of billion-dollar-plus outcome from Jerusalem ever, and maybe one of the first in Israel. I didn't realize it was a historic moment, in hindsight it was. So I believe that the company you're talking about is Delta 3, but I want to take you back to the moment where your first company, TTR Technologies, went public. How did it feel at that moment? You know, it's an interesting question because a lot of people ask me, what, what does it take to get you excited, right? An uh, entrepreneur who I've been working with, let's just say we had raised $50 million. He's sitting there on the screen watching the bank account. And, you know, one moment there's like $2. And next moment there's $50 million and $2 in the bank account. And I'm like, okay. And he's like yelling at me, shaking me up. What's it going to take, you know, for you to have that moment? So going back to TTR... As a young entrepreneur, it was very exciting. I think it lasted you know for a minute. When I received the first check, I had sold some shares, and I paid off all of my uh, student loans. And it was like a moment of super excitement. It was, I would say, more of a spiritual moment than anything else of this kind of freedom. But I also learned in that process that the financial KPIs, as important as they may be, are not fundamentally what drives us. The excitements of TTR, of getting the check, which I thought was like the big goal, that excitement lasted for a minute. The excitements of creating jobs, of seeing all these people who are having personal fulfillment, building homes and families in Israel, contributing to our society, that was very exciting. So eventually you pivoted into venture capital and you worked at Jerusalem Venture Partners and Benchmark Capital. And then you decided to start your own VC. What was the reason for starting Pico Ventures? And how did it involve your latest success, the carousel company, Vroom? Pico did not start as a venture capital fund. It started as part of my ideological journey and this discussion about what responsibility do successful entrepreneurs have to give back to our society. Long before WeWork was a household name, I built the first Pico facility in Jerusalem. We were open to all entrepreneurs. Most people think of entrepreneurs as high-tech entrepreneurs, chasing that exit. But I'm also a big believer in social entrepreneurs. PICO stands for people, ideas, community, and opportunity. And I had this belief, if you bring those four things together, you know, we can achieve greatness. And then comes PICO the Venture Fund. I get a phone call from somebody and says, Ellie, I want you to check out this car dealership in Texas, of all places. I don't think I'd ever been to Texas, let alone Grand Prairie, Texas. You can see if you can find it on the map. 
for whatever reason, I got in an airplane and I flew out there and I walked into a U.S. dealership for the first time. And I could not believe that that's how people buy cars. That you speak to a uh, salesperson, who then hands you off to a finance manager. There's a negotiation. And, you know, I live in the world. Whatever you need, you click a button and it shows up. It was at that moment that I said to myself, why can't people just buy cars online and have them delivered to their front doors anywhere they are? I had found a deal, which I really wanted to do. I called all my friends. I said, this is the next big one. You should invest. And all the people that said yes were very happy. That's the birth of Pico, the venture fund. And the idea of doing all these things under the same umbrella, social responsibility, side by side, our economic goals, I think that's what the modern venture capital fund should look like. Ali, you've been involved in so many diverse ventures and companies and industries. I wonder, like, how do you choose where to be involved? There's a few ingredients. The first essential starting point is a very large addressable market. The other things that I usually look for are inefficiency. And this journey to hyper-efficiency is really the utilization of technology. But the most important piece, and so appropriate that we're kind of doing this in a storytelling format, is, you know, what's the big story? If the story isn't big enough, if it's not exciting enough, you're probably not going to get that many people excited about what you're doing. It's almost very Hollywood-esque. Who's the villain? Who's the knight in shining armor that's going to ride and save the day? And does that somehow unlock something emotionally that get people excited? And you're going to ask me, okay, what's exciting about this or the other that you did? The barrier of cost that forced people not to connect with phone calls, it's a very emotional journey. Early on, people are like, okay, so you're using this IP technology to connect a regular telephone with another telephone so people can make a phone call. Isn't that what I do already? And the answer is yes. But if we can bring the cost down, you can call your loved ones more frequently. We think we're actually doing something much bigger than just delivering a phone call. And with Room, what was the emotional story with cars? I had never bought a car in the U.S. I don't think I'd ever bought a car at that point at all. I'd always leased. I spoke to a friend. He says, do you know what it's like to go to a dealership? It is war. When I go in there, I know I'm going to be there all day. It's a negotiation. It's a painful process. And no matter what happens, even if I think I'm getting a good deal, I'm getting ripped off. Buying a car turns out is the second largest purchase that anyone makes after a house. It's a big deal for most people. And if your kind of on-ramp experience to buying a car is worse than getting a root canal, you know you have a problem. And that was my kind of original marketing line. There's this really bad experience that most people really hate doing, which is going to the dentist and getting a root canal. But there's one thing worse. It's buying a car. It's these basic values. If you can improve someone's sense of community and connectivity, if you can give a person a feeling that they're not getting lied to, ripped off, You're actually doing something that's very valuable. You talk a lot about Israel's relations with the neighboring countries and using business uh, and prosperity to create peace. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement, your vision? As a young soldier in the IDF, I had the good fortune of being one of the commanders of the Allenby Bridge Crossing between Israel and Jordan. This is in 1992. And the peace process was upon us. And kind of behind the scenes at this bridge, I was the only English speaker at the bridge, it was my job to kind of deal with all these people. 
when you talk about the Israel experience and what kind of prepares you for success in business, think of putting a young person in command of an international border and responsible for interfacing with global leaders. It's a pretty interesting trial by fire experience. But this ability kind of for me to connect with my counterpart in Jordan, we would meet in the middle of the bridge. If I cross the middle line of the bridge, he'd get this angry face, very upset with me, you know, go back. But we had built a very close personal human bond. And I was fascinated with what lies beyond the other side of the bridge. It's mostly made up of like-minded people who want to have prosperous lives. And I believe that this high-tech industry that I was getting involved with really held the secrets to unlocking the future of the Middle East. And in the late 90s, one of the ventures, which I don't talk about very much, this idea I had, along with a few other partners, to create a startup called Access Middle East that would be a regional business. And it would leverage Israeli entrepreneurship in partnership with people on the other side of that bridge, Jordanians. Egyptians, Lebanese, Saudi investors. I traveled across that same Allenby Bridge that I was commanding once a week to an office in Jordan to build up not only a business, but a business which I thought was fundamentally changing this region. We created 300 jobs, paying more than people were earning previously, headquartered in Jordan with a Jordanian CEO, with branches in Egypt, Lebanon, the Gulf, It sounds like a fairy tale, right? It's not something that's even possible because they believed what I believed, that peace was imminent, that there were two major economic powerhouses in this region, Israel and Saudi Arabia, that needed to engage to help steer all of us to a better future. The sad end to that reality fantasy was the Second Intifada, the Second Palestinian Uprising, a distancing of my partners from me, not because they wanted to, but because the environment in the region forced them to step back. And the sad end is that the vast majority of those people who fundamentally were benefiting from this potential of peace and partnership with Israel lost their jobs. I was greatly disappointed after that whole thing fell apart. And that was also a very important lesson. Unless there's a solid business case, the mission doesn't matter. And then, in the middle of 2020, maybe what will be remembered as one of the worst years in modern history with this international pandemic, emerges the Abraham Accords. And lo and behold, there's an opportunity, again, to engage. And I decided that one of the things I would work on was to kind of re-engage in this bridge building, being a personal ambassador for Israel and the Jewish people in that geography, in that world, is very much a big part of my mission today. This is a new era. I think kind of the sky's the limit. Now I'm going to ask you a few questions that I ask each of our guests. What's one piece of advice that you wish that someone would have given you at the beginning of your journey? In spite of the fact that I made a big joke about not having uh, the skills, it doesn't hurt to take a few uh, business and finance classes. It doesn't hurt to take a few technology classes if you plan to build a career in these areas. What is the one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you? What's your next question? I'll, I'll think about that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to let you uh, get away, but uh, we can give you more time. Um, what are you currently obsessed with? I am obsessed with the same thing I've always been obsessed with, which is helping entrepreneurs realize their dreams. Most of my time, most of my fulfilling time is spent with a young entrepreneur who's starting to develop his or her dream and helping them get out, you know, into the future. 
as I promised, I, I'm going back. What, what is the one thing that most people get completely wrong about you? With the benefit of time, people assume that I've always been successful. You know, maybe Ellie Wertman comes from a privileged background. I worked very hard in a lot of jobs, in a lot of menial labor, building my way up. It wasn't always easy. Uh, there was a lot of failures, a lot of hard work. And you know, most people think the life of a VC is lunches and dinners and uh, golf courses and yachts and all that. And it seems today that people have these overnight successes. The overnight success you know, took a long time. And my last question, what are you most optimistic about? I am a true believer that every single individual in this world has the ability to change reality. The fact that anybody who I engage with in my life might be that change maker that solves the environmental problems, that solves you know, the issues of conflict in our region. And I believe that we are in a great society with great people, with a great set of values, and go out and make that change happen. Ellie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Gil, for the opportunity to share some of my favorite stories and, of course, discuss my favorite topic, Israel. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit iTrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Ellie Blyer, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and Litraot. See you next time.